Hello, and welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. In our last lesson, John saw the temple in heaven opened, and seven angels received the seven golden bowls filled with the complete wrath of God. According to the vision, God is about to repay those who have persecuted his people. He's about to punish those who've chosen to reject him and who've refused to acknowledge his offer of salvation found in Jesus Christ. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. As Revelation 16 begins, John hears a voice. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land, and ugly, painful sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Remember that pouring out something symbolizes that nothing is held back. The results of this first bowl are like the plague of boils that God sent upon the Egyptians in the days of Moses, recorded in Exodus 9, 8-11. In fact, the word that John uses for these sores, helkos, is the very same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to describe what the Egyptians suffered. Verse 3 goes on, The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned into blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. Like the plague of Egypt mentioned in Exodus seven twenty to 25 water is turned to blood. John adds, though, with this judgment, the sea turns to blood like that of a dead man. I don't know if you know, but the blood from a dead person is actually toxic. If a doctor were to transfuse the blood from a dead person into a living one, the recipient would immediately die as well. That's the effect that John sees here as all sea life is poisoned. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and the springs of waters, and they became blood. So notice even the fresh water here is turned to blood. How terrible. And yet, John is reminded of something very important in verse 5. Then I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, You are just in these judgments, you who are and who were the Holy One, because you have so judged. For they have shed the blood of your saints and prophets, and you've given them blood to drink as they deserve. And I heard the altar respond, Yes, Lord God Almighty, True and just are your judgments. Heaven confirms that God is just in what he does. All that he does to avenge the deaths of his holy people is well deserved. In fact, God is giving the beast's followers what they've always desired. They have continually thirsted for the blood of God's people. And now the Lord has given them their heart's desire. He's given them blood to drink, literally. Verse 8, 
The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and the sun was given power to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God, who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. This judgment is made even worse by the fact that there is likely little left to drink. But as Pharaoh did in Egypt, they refused to repent and glorify him. How incredibly stubborn the human heart is. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom was plunged into darkness. Men gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they'd done. As with the ninth plague of Egypt in Exodus 10, verse 21 to 23, the beast's kingdom was plunged into darkness. Do you see how the effects, though, of the various bowls accumulate? The sores brought on by the first bowl of wrath are still affecting people as the fifth bowl falls. Perhaps the judgments are coming so fast there's no time to recover from one before the next hits. Yet instead of crying out to God, they curse him. They would rather gnaw their tongues in agony than call out to him in repentance. The sixth and seventh bowls relate to the events we'll see in the upcoming chapters of Revelation. Look at verse 12. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are spirits of demons performing miraculous signs, and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. This drying up of the waters is yet another reminder of Israel's exodus from Egypt. You'll remember how God dried up the Red Sea, allowing Israel to pass through on dry land, but then drowning Pharaoh's army when the waters closed. Then, as they were about to finally enter the promised land, under the leadership of Joshua, God dried up the waters of the Jordan River so that his people might once again cross on dry ground. With the sixth bowl, the Euphrates River to the east of Israel dries up to prepare the way for the kings from the east, for a great army is on the move, just as we saw at the blast of the sixth trumpet. John also indicates that there is demonic involvement in what occurs because he sees demonic spirits associated with the unholy trinity of dragon, beast, and false prophet. The fact that they're like frogs speaks to the fact that they're unclean because frogs were said to be unclean creatures according to Leviticus. Interestingly, there's a play on the word spirits here in the text that we shouldn't miss. In Greek, the word for spirit is pneuma, but that same word also means breath. 
John says that these spirits, the pneuma, came out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So perhaps this is John's symbolic way of saying that the dragon, beast, and false prophet breathed out evil influences by which they deceived the national leaders across the world drawing them to gather their armies for battle in the Valley of Armageddon. And we're going to see this battle detailed later for us in Revelation. Though the kings or leaders probably think they have their own reasons for assembling for battle as they do, really Satan is drawing them together to ultimately unite them against Christ, whether they understand that bigger picture or not. Suddenly, in the middle of John's vision, Christ speaks with an urgent message to his people even now, as he warns us, Behold, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes with him, so he may not go naked and be shamefully exposed. In saying that he comes like a thief, Jesus reminds us that his second coming is going to be unexpected. And then he gives what is the third blessing of Revelation, saying that there's a blessing for all those who watch for his return and who keep themselves prepared. Of course, the clothes he's speaking of here have nothing to do with actual clothing like jackets and ties and dresses. Rather, Jesus urges us to be clothed in all that he provides. Think of it in military terms. It doesn't matter how well equipped a soldier is or how much he knows about his equipment if he doesn't put on his armor and pick up his weapon ready to use it. Jesus also calls us to stay awake for a soldier who's fallen asleep is of little use to his commander-in-chief or to his companions. Even now, evil forces are at work. There is a battle raging around us in the spiritual realm, and we need to remain alert and ready, prepared for anything. John's focus is now drawn back to the earth as the kings begin to gather for battle. Verse 16, Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. In Hebrew, the name is actually Haramegiddo, which means the place of troops, and it refers to the valley of Jezreel in the north of Israel. Scripture also calls this the valley of decision because it's long been associated with war. This is the same valley where Deborah and Barak of the Old Testament defeated the chariots of the Canaanite army led by Sisera. It was here that Gideon defeated the Midianites, and it was also where King Saul lost his life. The prophet Daniel warned in Daniel 11 verses 44 to 45 that this valley would be where the Antichrist would pitch his tents for the final battle. And what an incredible location it is. Even the French general, Napoleon, looked upon this valley and thought it was the best site for a battle that he'd ever seen. He very famously said, Here, indeed, all the armies of the earth may gather together, and they will, for this is the place for the final battle between God and Satan. Verse 17, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne, saying, It is done. 
Notice that the seventh angel pours out his bowl into the air, and this is significant because Paul taught in Ephesians 2 verse 2 that Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, and Paul used the same Greek word for air that John uses here. Thus, the seventh angel pours out the final bowl of God's wrath upon the realm from which Satan operates. God has entered and destroyed the enemy's headquarters. And as that happens, a voice speaks from the temple in heaven, declaring it is done. God's judgment is complete. Verse 18. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts, and the cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and the mountains could not be found. From the sky, huge hailstones of about a hundred pounds each fell upon people and they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Again, we see the mention of the lightning and thunder and the worst earthquake ever known to man. The great city, which is thought to be Jerusalem, according to Revelation 11 verse 8, splits into three parts. Catastrophic events follow as other cities are also affected and the physical features of the earth begin to shift. The text says islands and mountains disappear. A great hailstorm begins with huge chunks of ice falling from the sky. Though some might find such an event hard to believe, I want you to know that even today there have been records of 300-pound chunks of ice falling from the sky in various places around the world. So it's by no means impossible. Besides, we cannot forget that God is not limited to do only that which we believe is likely. Chapter 16 ends with a final glimpse of the people of the earth still cursing God. They've remained resistant to him until the very end, regardless of the unchanging love God has shown them and the overwhelming power of his anger that has now been revealed. Chapter 17 begins with the description of another woman. In the vision in Revelation 12, John described there a woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and 12 stars on her head, whom we understood to be a symbol of the Jewish people. But this chapter here introduces a very different woman who is referred to as Mystery Babylon. And because she is a mystery, some of our questions are not going to be answered. We cannot go beyond what the scriptures reveal. However, some things will be made clear about her. She's very much opposed to God because she belongs to the dragon. She's closely associated with the Antichrist, and she will ultimately be punished for her many sins. In fact, chapter 17 is almost all about her punishment.
One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. God's messenger calls her the great prostitute who lures mankind to commit spiritual adultery against God. She is said to sit on many waters, meaning that her influence spreads across the earth because in verse 15, the angel is going to say that the waters John saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The kings of the world and those who don't belong to Jesus are said to be intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. They've come under her influence as any addict succumbs to their drug of choice. It's interesting to me that the first part of a person's brain that is suppressed by the consumption of alcohol is the same part that's responsible for a person's self-control. With foolish recklessness, those who do not belong to God quickly and willingly swallow all that this evil creature has to offer. Verse 3, Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert, where I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. In a spiritual sense, John is carried away into the desert wilderness to see more of the vision about this same woman. Because the wilderness is a place of wandering where no rest can be found, we realize that she can't bring true peace and rest or belonging to those who follow her. She sits on a beast, a beast that's filled with blasphemous names, seven heads and ten horns. In other words, she sits on the Antichrist. Notice she's clothed in luxury, wearing purple and scarlet, glittering with gold and precious jewels. Everything about her conveys great wealth and power. She seems so beautiful, so seductive, and yet look at what she carries in her hand, a cup filled with abominable things and filth. Who would willingly drink from such a cup? But her followers are deceived by her. They're so intoxicated by her seduction they don't even notice. This title was written on her forehead, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Notice he first reveals she's called Mystery Babylon the Great. Much about her is mysterious, and that may be part of her allure. But God is the revealer of mysteries, and he'll reveal more of who she is to his people at just the right time. The rest of her name is associated with the ancient city of Babylon, which probably indicates her association with false religion, because Babylon, or Babel as it was known before, had been associated with false belief about heaven and about God from as early as Genesis 11. It was in Babel that mankind tried to get to heaven without God's help. 
They built a tower hoping to reach heaven by the work of their own hands. They ignored God and believed that they really didn't need him, much like those of the Antichrist's realm in Revelation. The woman's name ends with this, mother of the prostitutes and abominations of the earth. Everything that is associated with her, that comes from her, is vile and corrupt. Verse 6, I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. When I saw her, I was greatly astonished. Then the angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides, which has the seven heads and ten horns. The beast which you saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss and go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world will be astonished when they see the beast, because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. John was overwhelmed when he realized that this woman, this false religious world system carried along by the Antichrist, was drunk with the blood of God's people who testified to Jesus. The angel reveals that the beast which John saw once was, now is not, and yet will come up out of the abyss, will go on to his destruction. Some believe that this describes the Antichrist's world system rising out of the roots of the old Roman Empire, which once was, now it is not, and yet it'll rise again. But others wonder if this is perhaps a reference to the Antichrist's counterfeit resurrection, which was mentioned in Revelation 13, verses 3 to 4. Let me encourage you, if you're struggling to understand the vision at this point, this will be a mystery until God reveals it to his people. But we will know what we need to know when we need to know it. So take heart from the angel's reminder to John in verse 9 that this calls for a mind of wisdom. Let's be content with what is known and wait for wisdom for the rest. The angel continues to describe this woman and he says the seven heads are seven hills on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. But when he does come, he must remain for a little while. The beast who once was and now is not is an eighth king. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. He belongs to the seven and is going to his destruction. There have been many different ideas about this complex part of Revelation and what it means. Some associate the woman and the Antichrist with the city of Rome because that city is built on seven hills. But while that might be true, there are many other cities of the world, including Jerusalem, that also stand on seven hills. Verse 10 also goes on to link these seven hills here with seven kings. So in that case, the seven hills could be seen as symbolic of seven peaks of power more than about literal hills. 
representing the empires whose leaders have been against God and his people. John received this revelation near to the end of the first century, and at that time, five world empires had come and gone. There was Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, and Greece, and the leaders that represented them were the five that had already fallen. The world power that existed when John wrote down this vision, the one that is, was Rome. And the final empire, the seventh one that had not yet come when John wrote Revelation, was surely the kingdom that would ultimately be led by the Antichrist. From verse 11, we understand that the Antichrist, or the beast from the sea, is the seventh king, and he belongs to the seven. So he's really part of all that. However, it is thought that at his supposed resurrection, the destroyer, Satan himself, will indwell the Antichrist, making him the eighth king, because he will be different, very, very different, to what he was before. And all of this may seem very confusing, and I guess it will be until God fully resolves this mystery. But in the end, the one thing we can be certain about is that the Antichrist is, as it says in the text, going to his destruction. But what about the 10 kings that we've previously said support the Antichrist in his rise to power? The angel says in verse 12, The 10 horns you saw are 10 kings who have not received a kingdom, but who for one hour will receive authority as kings along with the beast. They have one purpose and will give their power and authority to the beast. So these ten horns are clearly identified as being ten kings or leaders who are still to come. They will briefly hold power with the Antichrist. However, their true purpose is to give their authority to him. According to verse 14, these kings or leaders, as well as the Antichrist, hate and oppose Jesus Christ. They will make war against the Lamb, but the Lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and with him will be his called, chosen and faithful followers. All of their efforts will fail because Jesus is the victorious King of kings and Lord of lords, and all of his faithful followers will be with him. In fact, they cannot be separated from him, no matter what these world authorities might do. The angel then gives John some additional information about what is going to happen next in verse 15. Then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and languages. The beast and the ten horns you saw will hate the prostitute. They will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. They will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. 
So the prostitute, this evil world religious system controlled by the Antichrist, is associated with a city, and it'll have great influence over all the people and nations. And though the ten kings support the Antichrist in his rise to power, they really hate the city. In fact, at some point, the kings will turn on her and destroy her. And verse 16 actually tells us that the beast hates her as well and that he helps bring her to ruin and burn her with fire. Now, I know you're probably thinking that that doesn't make any sense. They're supposed to be on the same side, but this is how evil operates. There's always discord in the mix. There's no real love or loyalty when people are ruled by fear, by deceit, and by coercion. And we need to remember that Satan is actually controlling all of these players, using them as he sees fit for his ultimate aim of dethroning God. However, verse 17 reminds us that God is in control and that he is allowing them to operate only until his purposes are accomplished. The angel's final words to John reveal that this woman, the great prostitute, mother of so many abominations, drunk with the blood of the saints, represents the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. As we've seen, there's a lot of debate as to which city this could be, or even if it refers to an actual physical city at all. And so, Perhaps it's better for us not to go beyond scripture and to hold to one argument or another or even try to identify it further. Surely it's enough to know that this woman and what she represents is central to the Antichrist's empire and she will not escape the treachery of her companions or the judgment of God. And we're going to get into that next week. God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.